Well, good morning. So that's a, that's a sweet song to be able to follow after. It's a hard one to follow after. But I'm thankful for those words because that's why we're here, is that our lives would be changed by the worship, the time together, the, the teaching. It's, it's not enough to study God's Word. We should be studying. We should be eager and excited to study, to come together. But it's for the changing of our lives, the being conformed into His image, being doers, not merely hearers of His Word that we, that we gather together. I'm going to ask a question this morning. It's probably one you don't think of too often in church. You may have never been asked this in church before. You may be afraid to answer it in church. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? Now, I know you're not supposed to say yes, because that doesn't sound very Christian. We just read a psalm, Psalm 39 by David. He were to get up in many of our churches and to read that psalm or just to start speak those words and you didn't know it was a psalm, you would think there was something wrong with him. He needs counseling. He needs to be fixed. I think the reality is that many of us have experienced times where we've been disappointed. And really when we're disappointed, there's one of two reasons. One of them is that we may have had unrealistic expectations. Ultimately, both of them are going to lie with us, but one of it may be that we were asking for things that Jesus never promised. We expected things that he's never said he would do. But we'll lay that aside for a moment, and let's assume for a second that you were fully expecting something that he seems to have promised in his word, that he's told us he would grant, that he's told us he would give. Where is the peace? Where is the comfort? Where is the assurance? Where is the salvation of my children? What do you do in those times? Is the fault with you or is it with God? When he said he was going to do those things, why hasn't it happened yet? Well, this morning, as Jesus comes down the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples, we encounter a father who asked that question, a father who was doubting and was concerned. And it leads to a rather fascinating interaction between Jesus and his disciples. It teaches us a great deal about doubt and faith. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you and invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 17. Beginning down in verse 14. We read, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted or crooked generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him. And the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive him out? 
And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except for prayer and fasting. Pray with me if you would. So we enter into our study this morning. Father, thank you so much for our time together in your word, our time together in fellowship this morning. We thank you for, for the songs we've sung, the ways they stir our hearts, the way they encourage us, the way they help us to lift our eyes from the daily, weekly struggles we have to eternity, to you. Thank you for the hope and comfort that comes through you. As we engage with the text this morning, as we look into it, as we are invited to walk alongside you and the disciples here, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this is not an easy text. There's a lot of questions that come to mind. Would we understand them? Would your spirit that you have given, that you have promised to us, would he work to lead us and guide us into all truth? And as we sing or listen to singing this morning, would that truth transform our lives so that we live, leave here? with a desire to grow greater in our faith, to grow closer to you, and to faithfully proclaim your name among the nations. In your name, amen. Well, in this short little section that we read, there's really three scenes that are presented in rapid succession with one another. You have that prayerful pleading of the Father. You have the passionate, very passionate response of Jesus, both verbally and then the healing itself. And then where we will probably be spending most of our time this morning, this private discussion between Jesus and his disciples. I want us to look at these this morning and watch how they develops. Watch how this all develops. As we look at and as we seek to understand how we are to deal with disappointment. How we are to deal with doubt. Verse 14 really sets the context for us, that they are Jesus along with the, his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, you may remember. They've been up on the Mount of Transfiguration for some period of time. During that time and in the days preceding, the crowds have finally caught up to Jesus and the rest of the disciples. You remember they had sailed to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, they sailed back north after dealing with the religious leaders who had come up from Jerusalem. Then they hiked some 30 miles inland to the base of Mount Hermon, the highest of the peaks surrounding Israel. It was in Galilee territory, or Gentile territory in Galilee at that time. And Jesus had gone up onto that mountain. We looked at what took place on that mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, and not only the remarkable events, but the teaching that came from that. Well, they now descend, and as they come, they, they come amongst the crowds, and and Jesus has barely stepped foot off the mountain before he's immediately interacting with one of those from the crowd. And it's a story we've seen many times before. Someone pleading with him. During Jesus' absence on the mount with Peter, James, and John for that transfiguration, the other disciples had apparently been quite busy. They had been busy with healing and ministering to the crowds. However, their ministry has not been without problems, and that's why we have this father coming to Jesus. It's not nearly as disastrous as the leadership of Aaron and the elders of Israel when Moses went out onto the mountain. 
but we still have a problem. There's been setbacks to the ministry. And there seems to be a question about whether the power and the authority of Jesus is really sufficient for all healing and casting out of all demons. And we learn this from the mouth of the Father who comes to Jesus prayerfully and worshipfully pleading. I mean, you look at the attitude of this Father, it's a faithful follower, a faithful disciple. He, he kneels down, he implores him, he calls him Lord. He is deferential, he is worshipful, most of all, he is hopeful. But he's also not shy in acknowledging that the disciples, your disciples, Jesus, the ones that you left in charge, they have been unable to heal my son. His son is extremely and severely stricken. You know, it's not at all uncommon to find demonic possession involving attempts at destroying the very person that is possessed. We see this in scripture, you read it in extra biblical accounts. And it's not a surprise, the purpose and aim of demons and Satan is to take as many persons as possible with them to hell before their end comes. So the early demise of persons, if they can bring it about, fits right into that plan. But demon possession does look different throughout even the Bible and even in extra biblical texts. There's no set rule on how or what demon possession looks like. This morning is not going to be a study session on demonology. This is just primarily descriptive. It's what's going on with this possession that this young man has. Now notice the plea of the father. Have mercy on my son. How many parents have prayed this? Both over bodily sickness and injuries as well as for the spiritual well-being of their children. In fact, children, you probably don't even realize how often your mom, your dad, your Grandparents have prayed over you. I remember when Judah was born, there were concerns over his health in the first few days of his birth. I remember with Elise praying, so, praying this prayer in so many different ways. At times it was just, Lord, please help. If you're a parent, you can empathize with this father. But that call of mercy is also theologically pregnant. Taking us all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, it's the cry of a sinner, have mercy on me. This is the prayer of salvation, both physical and spiritual. In fact, you may remember as we begin looking at that, especially at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you begin to see the interweaving of the healings of sickness and disease and why that was so central to Jesus' ministry. Because it demonstrated the power and the authority he has over sin itself, which is the reason and the cause for all sickness and disease. It established his authority and his power. And so you began to see this intermingling of these cries for mercy being, yes, physical, but spiritual as well. Now up to this point, everything here is pretty straightforward. We have seen this probably half a dozen times in different ways, but, and the details change somewhat. The location may be slightly different, but we have seen this. We've seen these appeals for healing, these appeals for mercy. Where things were get really interesting is the Father's closing words. I brought him to your disciples. They could not cure him. Despite the failure of the disciples, his Father still believes perhaps Jesus can heal, but damage has been done. It's been done to the confidence persons have in Jesus' words that his disciples would have the power to heal every sickness and disease, have authority 
over demons. Now, where did this come from? Well, the crowds were there, Matthew 10. You can take a left back to Matthew 10, just a few pages over. When Jesus commissioned amongst all of the disciples, remember the disciples, you have got to pay attention to the context because disciples can be more than just the 12. We get very familiar with the 12, but that was a select group. And even amongst them, Jesus, yes, he played favorites, Peter, James, and John. But there, was, there were many that were called disciples. At times, the crowds, the, those that were called disciples may have been as many as 70 to 100. But in Matthew 10, he calls apart part 7 or 12, excuse me, specifically, who are the apostles. And he summons these 12 disciples. And he gives them, there in verse 1, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of sickness and every kind of disease. And he does this in front of many different persons. So now there's an expectation that these 12 specifically can heal every type of disease and cast out demons. So the question is now implicitly raised, what went wrong? Did Jesus misspeak? Did he promise too much? What's happened? Well, Verses 17 to 18, Jesus isn't too happy. And that might be putting it mildly. Jesus answered this father, but what's interesting is he doesn't actually answer the father. He answers the question of the father, but he's not answering the father. And we see that because there in the text, and it doesn't come out as well in English because, unfortunately, our Bible translations don't use y'all enough. But it's the plural. It's you all. It's the y'all who are the unbelieving and the crooked generation. Now who are they? Who is the y'all? Commentators have offered a variety of opinions. However, when you really start to think about it, I think there's really only one that makes sense in the context. I agree with Noland and others who note that Jesus' fierce words can be provoked only here by the failure of the disciples. The y'all here is the disciples. The disciples represent the present generation in their failure to respond rightly to the ministry of Jesus. Now you might say that is pretty harsh language for Jesus to use against his disciples, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. But it's also not outside the character of Jesus, nor is it without precedent. Can you think of a time where Jesus might have equated someone, someone who speaks out quite a bit, with Satan? just a chapter earlier. Jesus' rebuke to Peter was, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter's words and actions had demonstrated, just like Satan, opposition to the plan of God and the lack of belief that Christ would do what he said he was going to do. So Jesus responded with stern words to highlight who Peter at that time looked more like. And now he does the same thing to the disciples. He's calling these nine disciples, the ones who had been down there ministering, unbelieving and crooked because of their inability to heal the son. And how their inability to heal the son demonstrates unbelief. And unfortunately, it's caused unbelief to creep in amongst the people. As a result, these disciples look like the unbelieving and crooked generation. There's really no excuse 
when I picture this scene in my head, I also can't help but imagine Peter at this point, thankful that for once it's not him who's receiving the stern rebuke, wisely staying silent here. And we'll return to the whole issue of the disciples' unbelief and in a moment. But first, Jesus directs his attention to the Son. And what, Je- what does Jesus do in verse 18? It's the second half of his response. Exactly what the Father asks. Exactly what the Father asks in belief and trust and faith that Jesus can do, even though the disciples couldn't. And so with a word, Jesus rebukes the demon, heals the son, and shows the mercy that was asked of him. Notice the use of it once. Again, there's no doubt. There's no doubt at all about the authority of Jesus. He speaks and it is done. There is no delay. Confidence is restored. Jesus is still on the throne. All demons are subject to his authority and power, as well as all sickness and disease. Jesus has not been dethroned, and he has not misrepresented his power and authority. Whatever questions may have been raised in the minds of the crowds about Jesus due to the failure of the disciples has been laid to rest. Now, we don't know anything more about this boy and this father. We can only assume the father was overjoyed at the turn of events, the mercy of God, the mercy of Christ. We can only imagine the thankfulness of Je- he had toward Jesus, the words he would have expressed at Jesus' healing. We can only imagine the deepening love and worship that would have resulted in the father as he went from disappointment with the disciples to worship and exultation over Christ's work. But instead of dwelling on that, the scene shifts rather abruptly again. It shifts to later, it could have been moments, it could have been hours later, when Jesus could be approached privately by the disciples. I tend to think it was later that evening. The disciples come and are able to privately ask Jesus a question. And what question is it that they ask? Now before we get to the question, I'll leave it hanging there for a moment and we answer it. I want you to take a moment to recognize how much is actually happening here. This is a short set of verses, but there is a lot happening here. As we move from the mountain to the Father's appeal to Jesus' response to the healing to this private instruction and interaction with Jesus' disciples, don't let these rapid-fire series of events and details keep you from missing something that's happening in the big picture. Don't miss the forest for the trees, in other words, because there's a great lesson here with Jesus and the disciples' interaction. Jesus' response in verse 17 seems harsh. It certainly feels harsh. And it was. It was strong. But it didn't run away the disciples. And the question has to be asked, why? It's because they knew his love for them. They lived together. They ate together. The type of hard love Jesus just delivered is well received because they know he actually cares for them. This is what discipleship looks like, by the way. Jesus didn't parachute in, rebuke them, and exit. He eats dinner with them that night. They sleep in the same quarters. He delivers hard words, but he hasn't gone anywhere. He's still there for them. Again, this is, this is what real discipleship begins to look like. It's time-intensive. It can be emotionally exhaustive. It requires vulnerability. And at times, it can get really uncomfortable. None of us likes to confront somebody, but we even like less being confronted with things. 
But hard words are delivered here in a context where there is continued involvement and follow-up. But it's all surrounded by an environment backed by demonstrations of love and care. Jesus has had years at this point, probably a year and a half to two years of close involvement with these disciples. And that's why we see such a different response from these men compared to the religious leaders. That's why the disciples approach Jesus. They don't approach to accuse. They don't approach to defend themselves. They approach to learn. It's literally what it means to be a disciple is one who's a learner. Now here's a fun question. How many of us, when we are rebuked, when we are confronted either by a person or just simply by reading Scripture or by the Spirit convicting us because we know what we should have done is right. We've done wrong. We know what the right thing was to do and we didn't do it. Children, you, know, you may have experienced this at times. You know what your mom and dad told you to do, but you didn't do it. And you feel that conviction. When we feel that conviction, when we feel that sting of rebuke, how many of us rather would go sulk in a corner and lick our wounds? How many of us instead want to go back and humbly learn? How quickly do we want to do that? Again, the difference between the disciples' response and that of the religious leaders that we've seen when Jesus rebukes them is that the disciples did not want to continue in their current condition. Yes, they looked like an unbelieving and crooked generation, but they didn't want to stay there. They wanted to learn. They wanted to grow. The religious leaders, they became defensive and argumentative. They become angry, and they begin to plot Jesus' death. A disciple, on the other hand, they don't get angry. They don't withdraw. Instead, they leaned in. They sought to learn. They exposed themselves to the potential for more hard truth hard reality about their current condition. So how are you doing in that area? I mean, how well do you take correction? Do you lean in to learn after being rebuked by another person or by Scripture or by the Spirit? Or do you become defensive? Do you want to push back? I know my natural tendency is to want to push back. My mom will tell you I've done that since, well, probably I was born. That's the natural tendency we all have. But how are you doing to work against that? Well, Jesus responds to these learners, these disciples, and he answers their question. You see, they had been healing and casting out demons, and that's the, that's the frustrating thing for them. It had been working. What has gone wrong? What's broken down? But this one didn't come out right away. Why could they not heal the boy and cast out the demon? And Jesus answers, and the answer is short, sweet, and probably a little painful. Because of the littleness of your faith. Now again, I want to comment, he did not say, because you have no faith. But he does say the littleness of your faith, that is, it needs to grow. And we're going to peel back the layers of this onion. And Jesus next says, they need faith like a mustard seed. Now I realize, depending on the translation you have, you may have something that says, as small as a mustard seed. If you have the English Standard Version, it would say like or as. 
And that's correct. There is actually no Greek text in the, of the Gospel of Matthew that has as small as a mustard seed. So scratch that out. Like or as. As small as is just an interpretation. And it's one that I want to, I think as we walk through this, I think you'll join me in seeing that that's an incorrect interpretation that's been put into many of our texts. Even those that say as small as, you should see a little, and, and this is why they put them in there, pay attention to those little those miniature A's, B's, C's, the numbers, and look in those margins, because it tells you the original text was like or as. And so the question we need to ask is this, what is the characteristic of a mustard seed that Jesus is comparing and saying their faith should be like? I mean, let's ask the question about it being small. Is he saying that your faith should always be very small, as small as a mustard seed? Well, that doesn't seem right. Your faith should grow, should increase. In fact, the disciples are rebuked for the littleness of their faith. So having small faith does not seem to be the exhortation here. I don't think that's it at all. But I do believe Jesus has already revealed what the characteristic of a mustard seed is that they should have, that their faith should have. And again, he's done that just a little bit earlier. If you'll turn to Matthew 13. You may remember we've encountered Jesus' use of a mustard seed before, talking about the kingdom of heaven. But look at the characteristic of a mustard seed. And what is the characteristic that's being highlighted? Chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus presents them another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. In other words, it's looked down upon. It's the smallest. It's the least. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. In Israel, this is one of the biggest bushes or trees. So what is being highlighted? Is it the littleness of the seed? Not at all. What's being highlighted is that though it seems small, though it may be despised for its size at first, it grows to be larger than all others. Origen, an early church father who I don't often quote, said it well when he said, For although faith is despised by men and appears to be something very little and contemptible, yet when it meets with good ground, that is, the soul which is able fittingly to receive such seed, it becomes a great tree. You see, the comparison Jesus is making here with faith is that the mustard seed does not stay small. It grows. It grows to be among the greatest of the trees in Israel. And yet the disciples, their faith has remained small. It is not yet like a mustard seed. It must grow. They must believe and not doubt in all that Jesus has said. Well, how do we know that doubt is an issue here? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. It's because of what Jesus says next. And you'll have to bear with me. Because he says, if you had had this faith, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. 
Now I'll show you how this ties in with doubt. But first we need to acknowledge that, at least to our ears, this is a rather odd statement. We don't talk about speaking to mountains and just moving them. But Jesus is using what is likely a well-known figure of speech for what great faith looks like. In fact, Paul uses the same figure of speech in 1 Corinthians 13.2 when he says, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, in other words, great appearing faith, but do not have love, I am nothing. And Jesus, remember where he's at, standing at the foot of Mount Hermon, the greatest mountain in Israel or in the proximity of Israel, would have been creating quite an effect with this statement. But again, how do we know Jesus is speaking here of their doubt and their lack of belief? Well, turn to Matthew 21. Down in verse 18. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Here Jesus uses the same figure of speech. But he points out that they must have faith and not doubt. The smallness of the disciples' faith in Matthew 17 has to do with doubt. And this doubt is what is preventing their faith from growing like a mustard seed. The disciples' faith is still small. It has not yet become like a small mustard seed, which grows into a very great tree. And it's because they're still filled with doubting. And we've seen this, right? When Jesus explained to them he must go to Jerusalem and die, what was their response? Doubt. Questions. Peter went so far as to try and correct Jesus. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, they still were struggling to get it. So Jesus, I'm sorry, God descends in a cloud, speaks to those three, Peter, James, and John, and says, this is my son, listen to him. Pay attention to what he says. James says something very similar to this, doesn't he, in James 1? But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding, without reproach. And it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without what? Doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man not ought to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's another point of comparison between our passage and Matthew 21 that we just read. Both of them end with an exhortation to prayer that then will be followed by those great things. Now, why do they end this way? Why do both times Jesus talks about faith, the faith to move mountains, does he end it with prayer? 
and the importance of prayer. And in the case of chapter 17, even fasting. Well, the answer is because prayer is the soil in which faith is watered and where faith grows. Do not for a moment think that your faith will grow without prayer. Why is that, you ask? Well, we've talked about this. More than anything else, prayer and fasting are demonstrations of one's reliance upon God. What are you doing when you pray? You're saying, I can't do this. I can't accomplish this. This is outside of my control. And you're demonstrating faith. Fasting is a reminder that even the food I eat and its provision, even if it grows on a tree like an apple, it is still given to me by God. It's to create that reality in our minds, a reminder. So prayer deepens our faith because it reinforces our dependence and trust upon God. And prayer also becomes the means of grace that enables us to more clearly see God at work as it attunes us to how God is answering prayer. I want to encourage you, if you've not done this recently, to take some time. You can just Google George Mueller. And read some of the accounts of George Mueller. At a time when orphans crowded the streets of Bristol, England, George and his wife took many of them and started orphanages. But George wasn't a rich man. He didn't really have the resources to do this. So instead, he turned in prayer to his father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he was praying regularly. When you read his journals, his life, and the effects that prayer had, it was remarkable. One of my favorite stories is this. They were often at the brink of being without food, without a roof that was needed, without being evicted, all these type of things. They were always right at the precipice. Well, one morning, they were, he meets with his wife, and she said, we have nothing. We got nothing in the cupboards. There is nothing to feed all of these children we have under the roof. He says, set the table for breakfast. Pretty sure my wife would have committed me at that point. So they set the table. They call the children in. They sit down. He says, we're going to pray for the food we're about to eat. Now the children think he's crazy. What, what is he doing? He's lost it. He's finally lost it. But he prays and he gives thanks. No sooner had he finished praying. And it's a baker. A baker who couldn't sleep that night because it was impressed upon him that he needed to bake food for the orphans. George thanks him graciously and says, children, look, did the Lord not provide? Shuts the door. No sooner had he shut it when a milk truck had broken down outside. And the milk was going to spoil, so they said, could you use it? So they turned him away. No, of course they could use it. <laughs> There's story after story after story in his life. And it's encouraging to see these. And we're thankful that he wrote them down. Because it encourages us. It encourages us to see how the Lord is at work, how he answers prayer. I think the convicting part, the hard part about those type of things is asking myself, do I pray like that? How many of us believe like that when we pray? How many of us would set a table with no food in the cupboards and give thanks for it without doubting? 
Jesus rebuked the disciples harshly that day because of their doubts. Likely because their lack of prayer had set in and a failure to demonstrate their neediness. My belief here is that they took the promises from Jesus in Matthew 10.1 and they acted on them. They began healing, they began casting out demons, but along the way, with Jesus not right there next to them, they forgot that the power doesn't rest in them, it rests in God. And as they began to rely upon themselves, doubt set in, and before long, they aren't able to cast out the demon, they aren't able to heal the boy. So the answer to the question, why could we not cast it out? is because you tried to cast it out. You failed to remember that it's not you who's ultimately at work, but it's God. And so Jesus closes by reminding them of the importance of prayer. If you want to see the Spirit of God working, how many of us would say we don't want to see the Spirit of God working? Okay, good, we're all on the same page. If you want to see the Spirit of God at work, if you want your faith to grow, if you want faith like a mustard seed, then pray. If you fail to pray, and fail to pray with specificity so that you can see those answered prayers, then it's no better than trying to plant and grow a garden in the Sahara Desert. Now there is one quick comment I need to make on the statement, nothing will be impossible for you. Remember that we always, what we always say about the importance of context. Context rules our interpretation. Jesus is not here teaching that the disciples have unlimited power. Instead, he's referring back to all the authority he gave them in Matthew 10. Everything or nothing will be impossible. Nothing that I promise to you will be impossible. Nothing Jesus has given them authority over or authority to do will be impossible for them if they will pray and trust. They were confused because Jesus had given them the authority to cast out demons and heal every kind of disease, but it had apparently stopped working. And they came to Jesus saying, why? Why has it stopped working? And so Jesus tells them, they must believe and not doubt. If they will again remember that their power comes not from themselves, but from the Lord. If they will pray that way, if they will turn in prayer and reliance upon God, then everything that they have been given, all the authority they have been given, everything that has been promised to them will be accomplished through them. Nothing more, nothing less. There's really very little more that needs to be said this morning about this passage. But I do want to just leave this question hanging in your minds. Just to make sure we leave something to think upon this week. And it's this question is, do you believe? Do you really believe? And there may be some sitting here this morning that have never believed. And if that's the case, if you have never confessed or repented of your sin, if you have never realized the penalty of sin that is not just physical death, but spiritual death, that is horrendous, it is torturous, and it goes on for eternity, but it is the right and just punishment for your sin. If you have never realized that and cried out to Christ for mercy, cried out to God for forgiveness for your sin, and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, gave his life for you, and is the payment for your sin, then that's where it needs to start this morning. It's believing that Jesus 
saves, saves all who call out to him. But perhaps you are here this morning and you have believed in the forgiveness of sins, but you realize that this morning, if I were to ask you about your faith, if you were to really be honest about your faith, if you were to be as honest as David is in the Psalms, you might say that your faith is a little more like the disciples. You have faith, but it's little. It's not growing like it should, like a mustard seed. Well, this morning, the solution to little faith, to a faith that is stagnant, is clear. And it's to pray. To pray regularly and to pray with expectation. Go to the Lord. Confess your spiritual neediness. Confess your physical limitations. But then trust and watch as God works. There's a danger we have when we emphasize the sovereignty of God. And I'm not about to de-emphasize the sovereignty of God, so you can put those concerns at rest. But there is a danger, I think, and a tendency that we have. And it's to be so complacent in our prayers, to back off and just say, well, whatever the Lord wills. Yes, we should trust Him. But He also tells us to come pleading to Him, to come with expectations of Him. Do you pray like that? Do you pray expecting him to act? I hope you do. And I hope you will. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the teaching, the instruction, and the example that's laid before us. Father, this morning we pray for faith like a mustard seed. Pray that we would, we would pray as we ought. We would cry out like the other who came to petition Christ and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark as to how to grow our faith. That you have not abandoned us, but Father, also that you are working actively in our lives. Would we pay attention to those things? Would we recognize those things? Would we be a thankful people for those things? And as we watch you answer prayer after prayer, would our faith grow step by step? It's like children who learn to trust their father and their mother as they see them act, as they see them to provide, as they see them care for them. Would we grow in our faith and our trust and our reliance on you? In your name, amen.